1: Welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. I'm here today with Dr. Peter Lawson, who is Chair of the Department of Critical Care at Toronto's Sick Children's Hospital and Professor of Anesthesia at the University of Toronto. We're going to talk today about low cardiac output. The goal of this feature is not to do an exhaustive study of the evidence in the literature, in part because there is not a great deal of evidence to guide us. But the goal of this talk is really to talk to a seasoned practitioner and find out how he thinks about these common issues that we deal with day to day. Dr. Lawson has extensive uh, experience and training. He trained originally as an anesthesiologist and then intensive care, uh, did cardiac anesthesia, anesthesia, and now intensive care for the last uh, 25 years. So someone with this background um, has formulated a, a framework to think about these problems And the goal today is to really talk to him about how he approaches this and talk in particular about certain scenarios once we discuss a framework for thinking about it. So Peter, welcome and thank Thank you you for coming down from Toronto. Um, I wanted to begin with low cardiac output syndrome. It's a common thing that we confront, but actually how do you think about it and and how do you define it?
0: Well, thank you, Jeff, and uh, hello everybody. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. You've asked a very difficult question and one of the things we notice in pediatrics in particular is that people think about management of low cardiac output in in different ways. There's quite a, a great deal of practice variability across the globe really in approaching low cardiac output state and some of it reflects what we rely upon in terms of assessment to guide our management but I also think it also is dependent on the underlying causes. Obviously there are many that will cause many, many uh, diseases or following various procedures that will result in a low output state. Low cardiac output state is not an uncommon problem in pediatric critical care. In many respects, the way in which we manage low output, though, is being directed by studies in adult critical care. And there are often not a direct translation in terms of the therapies or the diagnoses and the causes of low output state. So I think one way to approach this is to consider the management of a low cardiac output state in, in a framework that targets therapy and uh, understanding also that there are quite significant differences in pediatric patients compared to the adult population. One of the most obvious, of course, is the maturational differences that occur between the newborn infant and the older child and that has a, a very important impact on our approach to the management of low output state. Uh, There are of course differences in the causes of low output state. The management of a patient who has got congenital heart disease with a specific pressure or volume overload may be quite different at times to those patients who may have low output state because of sepsis. So appreciating those differences is important, although once again I think it's possible to have a framework that encompasses the management. I think a very important difference is that children defend their circulation very well. In other words, they can be tachycardic, present you with a relatively normal blood pressure, and yet be in a low output state until a critical event occurs and then they suddenly collapse. And they develop severe systemic hypoperfusion and risk end organ injury and mortality. It's a different presentation, and being able to recognize where children are in that spectrum is is also very important.
2: Please type the city and country where you're located. How do you make the diagnosis of low cardiac output state in your hospital? What clinical factors and biochemical tests are you using? What invasive and non-invasive monitoring do you use in your hospital? Please click the Start a New Discussion button to leave your answer.
0: The diagnosis of low cardiac output state primarily starts with a clinical assessment. But it's an assessment that occurs on the understanding of what the definition of a low output state is. And I think in its fundamental terms, it's the inability of oxygen delivery to meet oxygen demand. And that's a very simple relationship. But if you start with that, you can then start to target your therapy at aspects of how to augment delivery and how to limit the demand. I think it's probably worthwhile looking at that demand supply ratio, Jeff.
1: Peter, we're looking at the uh, well-described relationship between consumption and delivery, and we can see here on the x-axis, we have delivery in units of mLs per kilo per minute, and on the y axis, we have consumption as mLs per kilo per minute. And um, when I was first taught about this uh, 25 years or so ago, we were very much focused on the delivery side. And at that time, the concern about pathologic supply dependency and treating that with supernormal oxygen delivery, empirically increasing delivery, and all the studies that evolved at that time, that was the great focus. And as you know, those were negative studies and putting in PA catheters and driving up delivery has fallen out of favor and as we look at this relationship we see that obviously that uh, delivery in a human being and a healthy human being is in uh, in great excess of what is needed three to four times and that this is the so-called supply independent portion of the delivery and as the patient's getting more critically ill as I'm always saying to our fellows is really here as you were describing that's where you hope uh, any physician is able to spot that the patient is declining, and at this point, consumption becomes dependent on delivery, and oxygen extraction has done all it can, and now the patient's becoming increasingly acidotic, ventricular performance is failing. This is a patient that's going to die. As I said, I was initially taught to think about mostly this side of the relationship, but how do you think about this today?
0: Well, it's a very important question. And I one way in which i conceptualize it in my own mind is that this is a very dynamic curve that we're not fixed in this relationship that there are maybe factors that we may not measure or completely understand that are shifting the curve further uh, in this direction changing the uh, slope of this critical supply dependency component and changing from a state where we have uh, delivery that is well in excess of demand, I think we also need to concentrate our management in low output state on the de- on the demand aspect of this relationship. Certainly, we have circumstances where delivery is in excess of that demand, but you can't guarantee that that demand is actually reaching the cellular level. We're not measuring the past to a point we don't know what's happening to Uh, uh, oxidative phosphorylation at the mitochondrial level. We can't measure that. So this relationship may be inconsistent. I think it's a very important framework. But my approach to thinking about it is you need to target both areas in in, in the management. And we can talk about that in uh, a short while. But part of the assessment is, do we have too much demand? Can we optimize the delivery? And ways, and with the ways in which to treat both of these, that can achieve a balance that will then ensure adequate oxygen de- uh, delivery uh, to meet metabolic demand.
1: So I, I think you're making a very important point. As I said, I, I don't think that we often think about explicitly efforts to control consumption. So you're talking about uh, temperature, careful temperature regulation. I assume perhaps uh, neuromuscular blockade. Uh,
0: Yes, uh, those are uh, important uh, important aspects of treatment. And we're perhaps jumping ahead a little bit here and talking about specific aspects of management. But minimizing the demand is very critical. Treating fever. In the patient with sepsis, gaining adequate source control. The patient who uh, perhaps is on the ventilator, who is malnourished, optimizing nutrition, reducing... Uh, energy consumption because they're struggling against the ventilator, paralysis, adequate sedation, those types of variables are very important to try and optimize the supply to meet that demand. So if we can minimize the demand, that's an important first step in many circumstances.
1: Peter, I wonder if we could talk about, as you've noted, we have to think about both consumption and delivery. And one of the aspects of consumption that uh, you touched on was work of breathing and assessment of work of breathing as a means of reducing oxygen consumption, as a means of treating a low cardiac output state. So before we've even focused on augmenting delivery, you're emphasizing that we need to think about efforts to minimize consumption. You're standing over a patient. uh, It's the middle of the night. They have increased work of breathing. They're poorly perfused. What are you thinking about as you think about whether to secure the airway or not?
0: I'm thinking about two things primarily. One is, you mentioned the work of breathing and how much effort that requires. And the second is whether or not ventilation is going to help augment cardiac output. So let's separate both of those. The reason that a patient with increased work of breathing is at risk is because a larger percentage of their cardiac output, which is already marginal, is now directed at the muscles of respiration and in a newborn infant in particular the diaphragm so that burden decreases the oxygen delivery to other vital organs as well so a larger percentage of your oxygen delivery is directed just at work of breathing to limit that work of breathing i think is a very important early strategy the temptation of course is to go straight ahead and intubate a patient and mechanically ventilate the act of sedation, paralysis, intubation, and starting mechanical ventilation may result in profound hemodynamic instability, and I think many of us have seen that, uh, uh, that circumstance occur. Sometimes it's difficult to predict, and we can talk further about uh, strategies in that regard.
2: Please type the city and country where you're located. Are you regularly using non-invasive ventilation as a first step in your patients with low cardiac output state? And in which patients might you and might you not choose to use non-invasive ventilation?
0: But my first step, I think, is to, if I'm targeting worker breathing, is to try non-invasive ventilation. I think it doesn't require the same degree of sedation, if any at all, and overcomes the problems of paralysis, intubation, mechanical ventilation. There are different ways to achieve that work of breathing, and the optimal way, in my mind, is one that, uh, where the peak inspiratory flow demand is met by the non-invasive device that you're using. and It may be a CPAP mask, it may be BiPAP, it may be uh, high flow nasal cannula oxygen delivery. There are different strategies that are available, uh, and I'm not going to recommend one over the other. I think it depends a little bit on how young the patients are and how well um, they may or may not tolerate a mask on the face, nasal cannula, and those types of uh, variables. But I do think minimizing worker breathing with a non-invasive strategy is worthwhile to start with and very important. Of course, it also gives you, importantly, oxygen and a greater supply of oxygen than what you could achieve with either blow-by oxygen through a mask or just straightforward nasal cannula oxygen. So great advantages. The problem, of course, is that that may be a limited uh, response. So it's not a simply starting somebody a patient on non-invasive ventilation and assuming you've taken care of that problem. It doesn't take away the need for continual reassessment. Uh, And sometimes the patients struggle against it. It's not doing what you want in terms of minimizing work of breathing. And you need to then intervene, intervene early. So it's a first step, but it's not an end game. You have to continually reassess. The other question that comes up is the advantage of uh, mechanical ventilation to reduce wall stress on the systemic ventricle and thereby lower uh, afterload and augment cardiac output. Certainly that's a well-known circumstance in patients with uh, in adults with ischemic uh, cardiac disease and cardiomyopathy. It's well-known in, patient in, in pediatric patients with all sorts of volume loading circumstances on the heart and uh, cardiomyopathy. I'm not certain and I haven't seen Evidence that supports this that non-invasive ventilation will change your intrathoracic pressure to the extent where the transmural pressure across the left ventricle is altered to the point where wall stress and afterload are reduced. So I don't use non-invasive ventilation to augment cardiac output. in that regard always, but I certainly do to minimize their work of breathing.
1: It's interesting. So I I was assuming that you were going to answer the the affirmative. So let's draw this out a little bit. Um, You were just making the point that um, positive pressure by decreasing the transmural wall gradient across the LV at the end of diastole allows the ventricle to contract into systole and eject more effectively. But in your view, non-invasive ventilation. And and granted, we've talked about, as you noted, uh, several different types from high flow to full mask. But let's talk for a minute about full mask ventilation, CPAP of eight. I would think that even by taking the pleural pressure away from a negative pleural pressure, as the patient's breathing spontaneously, and even bringing the pleural pressure to something closer to zero mm-hmm. would still in some way decrease the transmural wall gradient and anything that's going to do that at this moment in a failing heart would be helpful but you're more skeptical
0: i, I don't think that we can guarantee that that's going to be the circumstance i understand the physiology and what you're saying and it makes a lot of sense it assumes that we are delivering that pressure that positive super uh, super atmospheric pressure into the intrapleural space and tra- changing that transmural gradient We know that there are different variables that affect that in pediatrics, and and particularly the type of seal, air leak, uh, and how much of a pressure you can actually transmit below the vocal cords is not always consistent or, um, I think, guaranteed. I'm not taking that off as a reason to consider non-invasive ventilation. I think in a patient with low output state who has increased worker breathing and metabolic demand because of that, Whatever you can do to minimize that work of breathing is a priority. Jeff, we've spent some time talking about non-invasive ventilation. Perhaps a riskier circumstance is the patient who needs mechanical ventilation and intubation. What's your approach to that type of uh, situation?
1: For a patient with low cardiac output, uh, this is clearly one of the most uh, difficult uh, transitions in patient care that we face, I think, is intensivists. Um, the usual considerations, of course, are going on, which is you're assessing the patient and anticipating whether the patient's difficult, airway, full stomach, and whether there's any contraindications to the induction agents that you may choose. Um, I believe it's uh, similar in your program at the Hospital for Sick Children's. In Boston, we've gone as far as create an intubation checklist.
2: Please type the city and country where you're located. Are you regularly using a checklist, or timeout, prior to intubation for every patient in your ICU?
1: It's uh, read by the event manager, and they go through it, and it takes about a minute to go through. But it talks about, our, have we assessed for difficulty, airway concerns? You know, what is the last known intake? Um, and then importantly, it, it assigns roles. Uh, paradoxically, in our environment, what's often happened in the past is there's been an assumption, that I thought you were going to do that, or I thought you were going to watch that. And so um, roles are assigned uh, from who's the laryngoscopist, who's the backup, who is going to be applying uh, CELICS or cricoid pressure, um, et cetera. And so I think that's a very critical step. But of course, in terms of stepping back and assessing the physiology, it gets back to what we were just talking about, which is what's your assessment of mean systemic pressure and venous return? And is this right atrium going to be able to tolerate the sudden transition from spontaneous ventilation with a negative pleural pressure to positive pressure where there could be a collapse of the right atrium and the loss of right ventricular output. And then similarly on the other side, you're anticipating what you hope is the benefit of decreasing that transmural wall gradient across the left ventricle. I wonder if I could ask you, however, Peter, to go a little deeper. Um, Some of my colleagues go as far as saying they want a free-flowing IV that they might anticipate drawing up Uh, epinephrine in doses of um, 1 to to 100,000, not 1 to 10,000, but smaller doses in anticipation of needing to coax uh, the failing myocardium through the event.
2: Please type the city and country where you're located. Do you regularly use 1 to 100,000 epinephrine in small incremental doses to coax the failing myocardium during intubation?
1: Others might even start free-flowing vasoactive agents. What are you thinking about in this scenario?
0: I'm thinking about all of those things. Uh, You mentioned the checklist. I think there's a step that's very important there and that is verbalizing what the problem is. Everybody needs to know that we're dealing with a patient who's got a very fragile circulation and a low output state. That the act of sedation and or paralysis uh, laryngoscopy and intubation and then mechanical ventilation may be associated with rapid decline in the circulation leading to um, chest compressions and advanced resuscitation. So you can very quickly lose control of the circulation and the situation. That needs to be conveyed to everybody at the bedside. And there needs to be a discussion about what are our strategies at each step of the way here. Who's monitoring uh, the circulation throughout this. Who's going to be, be able to provide me with the equipment or provide us with the equipment? We need to facilitate um, and expedite intubation. The ventilator uh, settings and um, respiratory therapy support also extremely critical in, in terms of being prepared. So uh, I agree with you, a checklist is very important. I think a, as important as a timeout before you start so that everybody knows what's going to happen and appreciates that this is a critical situation. Now, in part of that preparation, I agree with you, there needs to be some thought as to how can we anticipate and how can we mitigate the potential problems. I always have resuscitation medicines ready. And certainly for an infant or a newborn, one in 100,000 solution of epinephrine makes a lot of sense. But I have resuscitation medicines ready. I have a um, usually an inotrope running. Um, we'll cut to talk about inotropes later, but I think from dopamine through dobutamine through epinephrine, either any of those, and I would err on dopamine or epinephrine in terms of supporting the circulation during this critical phase. So have, have those drugs in line and running. It's always nice to have a free-flowing IV, if you possibly can. If you can't, and the patient's got a very unstable circulation, then an intraosseous catheter may be necessary. You may need to place central venous access under some sedation. Um, But it is important to have a source of drug delivery and rescue. So I think having access like that is very important. The way in which you induce and prepare for laryngoscopy, I think, uh, is variable. There are a number of drugs that, are, that, that can be used uh, in that regard. My own preference is to use uh, an opioid, a synthetic opioid, fentanyl. I think ketamine is another very useful drug. Atomidate is used commonly, although there are obvious concerns about the suppression of the adrenocortical axis and whether or not that will have an adverse effect in that sort of low-output state. So,
1: Is the present data on atomidate enough for you to say, I, I no longer use that in my practice, or do you still use that under certain circumstances? Uh,
0: I use that under circumstances where I'm concerned about neurological uh, injury uh, from hypoperfusion and in circumstances where I need to rapidly gain control of the airway patient who has a full stomach. Well, we should assume they all have a full stomach, but a patient where you think asp- um, regurgitation aspiration is, is, is mm-hmm. highly likely. Uh, so I think there is perhaps a role for a but it's not, my f- not always the first line drug. Um, and I think synthetic opioids at a dose of around 10 micrograms per kilogram, slowly titrated, is an appropriate way to uh, induce loss of consciousness in these patients. I think it's important to also remember that laryngoscopy is not a benign maneuver and can induce quite marked parasympathetic responses and if you have a patient who's already stressed and has got limited reserve and has got a fixed heart rate of around 150 you then induce another profound parasympathetic response because they're not uh, anesthetized or asleep sufficiently to tolerate that laryngoscopy you can rapidly see bradycardia evolve to asystole. So, Uh, Once again, that's part of the targeted discussion before going ahead. Um, I would also add that this is a critical uh, circumstance. That I don't really think this is, uh, particularly in centers where there are a large number of people that may be available, uh, the most junior or inexperienced person should not be doing this intubation. It is a teaching moment. On the other hand, it's important to gain control of this airway very quickly and to have some experience and understanding as to what happens as soon as that patient, as soon as you take over mechanical ventilation and alter preload and afterload. Once again, it's a team approach with clear discussion about all of these potential problems that can occur. Um, the other thing that needs to be discussed is ha- what, what is our recovery here? If we end up in uh, an arrest situation, who's available to help us with that re- with that recovery? Not only uh, other skilled hands, potentially ECMO in some centres, but the um, the drugs available uh, and and other support that may be necessary. All that needs to be considered. Uh, I would have just one last point. Uh, often these are stressful and difficult circumstances. And people, particularly the operator, is very concerned about losing the circulation. Convey that opinion. But to those people around, who are really should be the eyes of this procedure, they should be prepared to say stop or I am concerned. Because if a step is missed or there is a problem that may not be seen, then that should be voiced. Otherwise, uh, critical steps in the process will be missed that can lead to really untoward and severe consequences.
1: Uh, I think those are excellent points. This is such a large subject that Mm. that we're not going to say that this is a comprehensive of all things that uh, should be anticipated or should be done. But could I um, ask a couple of specific questions? Uh, Some of my colleagues think that um, a fluid bolus, 10 or 20 cc's per kilo of a crystalloid, is uh, always indicated just prior to the application of positive pressure in a situation where they're concerned about low cardiac output. They want to do everything they can to support mean systemic pressure and to assure venous return as you transition and anticipate those cardiopulmonary interactions. Um, I wonder if you could comment on that.
2: Please type the city and country where you're located. Do you routinely administer a fluid bolus prior to intubation in all patients with low cardiac output state.
0: I think a volume bolus makes a lot of sense, and I would, if I was in the circumstance of being concerned about the effects of preload, or adverse effects of preload related to mechanical ventilation, then I would certainly give that volume load before I started the induction. The uh, circumstance you can get, see problems, is when you've got a restricted output from uh, diastolic dysfunction. Giving a volume load makes sense in many circumstances. If I was concerned about the potential for the adverse effects of mechanical ventilation on preload before induction, then I would certainly give a volume load of crystalloid. and I think 10 to 15 cc per kilo is safe and prudent.
1: Uh, Peter, just a, a, f- a few more uh, particular questions, I'm sure, are on the minds of many people. Um, I have several colleagues who believe that atropine, for the reasons that you mentioned, to uh, blunt the uh, unwanted parasympathetic effects of laryngoscopy, that they will administer <coughs> atropine. And now we have to talk about your age limit. But I have colleagues who will say, for any infant under 12 months, I have other colleagues who say infants under 24 months, I have one colleague who even administers it for every child under five years to blunt the effects of laryngoscopy, and as you noted, the associated parasympathetic outpour and vagal outpour. Do you, um, is that your practice? How How do you think about
2: that? Please type the city and country where you're located. What is your practice? Do you routinely administer atropine to any specific groups of patients prior to intubation?
0: Well, it's not my practice. I don't think it's wrong. Atropine in doses that we routinely administer may not blunt the parasympathetic response to laryngoscopy. You may need a larger dose, it's not predictable in that regard. And I still believe that you need to use uh, adequate depth of sedation or induction of anesthesia to really obtain that response. If you are very concerned about those parasympathetic responses, then an awake intubation under local anesthetic may be in fact a much better way to proceed rather than relying on pharmacotherapy to control these responses.
1: Dr. Lawson, I wonder if we could talk about confirmation of endotracheal tube placement. And of course in this context, a high-risk context where you're trying to guide the patient through these delicate cardiopulmonary interactions, the laryngoscopist passes the tube, someone says, I don't feel a pulse, And the question now becomes, what's the optimal way to confirm endotracheal tube placement?
2: Please type the city and country where you're located. What strategies do you use in your hospital to confirm endotracheal tube placement following an intubation attempt?
1: In our hospital, the gold standard is detection of carbon dioxide. It's end-tidal CO2 monitoring. Uh, But the situation often arises that the laryngospitalist will say, or someone will say, we're not detecting end CO2 because there's no pulmonary flow. But if we've now started compressions and are administering fluid and we're still not detecting end CO2, there seems to be two camps that have evolved. One camp says, well, keep the endotracheal tube as you have it. You're not detecting end CO2 because of the lack of pulmonary flow. Another camp, and that's the camp I'm in, says, no, you have a problem either way because you should be detecting... N-tidal CO2 with external massage if you're doing adequate and having adequate external massage. And if you're not detecting N-tidal CO2, you either don't have an endotracheal tube in the trachea, or you're not doing effective compressions and movement of blood through the circulation with external massage. And either way you have a problem, but I would say pull the endotracheal tube. You, we haven't confirmed it, pull the tube. How do you think about confirmation of endotracheal tube placement in this context? And could you answer that particular scenario that I gave you as well?
0: That's a uh, difficult scenario that you paint there, Jeff, but let's stand back one step. Whenever you intubate a patient, you need to be able to demonstrate confirmation that the tube is past the vocal cords. And we rely on end-tidal carbon dioxide production, and that's the gold standard. It's part of the preparation before you intubate to make sure that you can, in fact, measure expired carbon dioxide. It does not replace other maneuvers, such as the technique by which you actually intubate and visualizing the endotracheal tube going past the vocal cords, auscultation, and even seeing misting within the endotracheal tube. So there are other steps that can help you confirm that you're confident that the tube may have, has, has gone past the vocal cords.
1: Just to be clear, um, if you have a vapor cloud and see misting, but don't have an entitled CO2...
0: So it doesn't guarantee it, because you may have uh, gas expired from the stomach that was instilled during hand ventilation or even air swallowing before you went to the point of intubation. So it doesn't, conf- doesn't provide you with an absolute confirmation. It's one of a series of things that you would need to look at. It's important to remember that this is a difficult time. You set the scenario with a patient who's pulseless, and you don't know whether the endotracheal tube is in the right position. Obviously, we need to start chest compressions as soon as possible, and we can't be distracted by concerns over the airway. Is it in? Is it out? Are we able to provide any sort of airway control and ventilation during the resuscitation? In my understanding, in those sort of circumstances, with adequate chest compressions and no obstruction to pulmonary blood flow from a pulmonary embolus, you should be able to establish end tidal carbon dioxide measurement. It may be very low. It may be um, uh, not anywhere near where you would expect a normal level to be, but you should still see not only end tidal carbon dioxide delivered, but you should also see a waveform consistent with uh, your ventilation that will show you uh, a plateau. Once again, may not be a normal waveform or a normal plateau, but it will still show you that waveform. So in the c- clinical picture that you describe, pulseless, no end tidal carbon dioxide, I would replace it into tracheal tube. I think it is a step that will uh, take out of the question whether or not That tube is in the right position, which becomes very important as the patient progresses during the resuscitation and may or may not respond to the resuscitation efforts. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide.